welcome Salem Chapel family uh, if you're joining us uh, in this room or from your living room. Uh, we are glad you're here. If, you're, uh, if you've been following Jesus for a long time or for a short amount of time or for no time at all, uh, we're really glad that you're uh, here or tuned in um, to this incredible passage that we're going to unpack today. Um, so we started uh, two weeks ago a new series entitled Different. So Pastor Johnny unpacked the first two weeks and today we will continue to work our way through this letter of First Peter. So the Apostle Peter who, who writes this is now an older pastor. Um, and he's at, actually at the end of his life. We'll talk a little bit about that. And here's what he's going to remind us of today. He's going to remind us of where our hope is in the midst of suffering, persecution, and trials. And here's the reality for those of us that are Christians. If you follow Jesus long enough, we will all experience that. We will all experience that at one time or another. The Bible talks about um, primarily two types of suffering. There's the suffering that comes from uh, doing evil, right? So that's kind of easy to understand, right? If I sin or I commit an evil, uh, heinous act, if I murder or I steal or, or whatever that might be, like there's consequences for that. There's a death that happens uh, as a result of that. The other type of suffering that the Bible talks about is suffering from doing good, which we don't talk as much about that, but we're going to press very much into that type of suffering today. It is thought that the Apostle Peter actually penned this letter while he was in Rome, in prison, awaiting execution. So think about that for a moment. The words all of a sudden have much more gravitas and much more significance as a man writes toward the end of his life. So Peter wrote with death looming on the horizon. But as we're going to see and we're going to be reminded of today, his gaze was firmly fixed beyond the horizon. So here's the theme of, of where we're going today. I want to give you a simple phrase that will always help you to remember the passage that we're going to go through uh, in your everyday walk with Jesus. And it's this, thinking and living with the end in mind. Thinking and living with the end in mind. Now, as I say that, it confronts a reality. The reality is this, that we live in a, a society of instant gratification, do we not? We live in a microwave, disposable culture uh, where a fallen and broken world is continually uh, celebrating uh, and holding up individuals that just are all about all you can do and squeeze out of this day with no thought of tomorrow or next week or next month or actually even getting to the end of my life. It's kind of the mantra of carpe diem. Of seize the day with no thought about any other day. And here's the truth for us as followers of Christ. We are ultimately living for another day that helps to bring meaning and significance to this day. Think about that. And how easy it is for us to lose sight of that. And when we do, as Peter is going to lovingly remind us, 
it will begin to wreak havoc into the way we think and into the way that we live. So if you brought one of these, which I hope you did, uh, go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Peter. We're going to be working our way uh, through chapter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 3. And let me just say what a glorious, glorious passage of Scripture this is. That the Word of God is not only timeless, but it's also timely. It's for us where we are in this moment. And we say all of the time at Salem Chapel that when God's word is opened, his what? Mouth is opened. That the scripture always speaks to us to encourage us, to provoke us, to equip us, to convict us, to grow us up in holiness. And I am confident that the Holy Spirit will do that today. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to commit this time to you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that joyfully surrender to your word. Because there is life and there is freedom found in your truth. Father, we are people that are prone to wander and drift and live as if we have no hope at all. Would you breathe life into us today, Lord? To equip us, not just for today, but for every day. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Peter, as Pastor Johnny um, unpacked the first couple of weeks, writes, writes to uh, the dispersed church or the, the Christians, the people of God that have now been scattered everywhere as a result of, of persecution that have, was breaking out against them. Now, when I use the word exile, for us in a Western context, it's a little bit hard for us to actually relate to that, right? You know, when you use the word exile in scripture, it means sojourner. It means that we are simply passing through, that this life will pale in comparison to my, the, to eternal life that I'll spend with Jesus as a follower of Christ one day. So let me see if I can uh, help us get a little bit more connected to this concept because it's really important in helping to shape our perspective. If you've ever traveled to a foreign country to which when you deboarded the plane and you walked out into the city or wherever it was, it was clear to everyone that you did not belong there. You didn't look like the people there. It might be facial features or skin color. You didn't dress like anybody else. You didn't speak the language, nor did you understand the language. And written all over your face was tourist or visitor or alien or foreigner from a different place. So the week before last, I was in the Dominican Republic doing a training for pastors uh, with Christ Together. And in the email correspondence, uh, they told me that my driver would pick me up from the airport, that, that he would be a tall Dominican, and that he would have braces. And I'm like, well, how am I going to know he has braces? Everybody has a mask on. But I just didn't question it. So as soon as I clear immigration and custom, you get dumped out into this part of the airport, and there was a sea of Dominicans everywhere. And so I proceed to try to find my driver. And I look and I look and I look and I can't find him. I go outside and I come back in and finally I give up. Well, about 20 minutes later, uh, I get a tap on the shoulder. And it was my driver's name was Kiki. And Kiki said, Pastor Will, it's so good to have you. 
And I jokingly said, well, how did you find me? Well, he said, because you're the only Blanco gringo here, right? It was easy. You stuck out like a sore thumb in the midst of my people, right? And this is kind of, this is the concept that Peter wants us to get into our minds as we live in the already but not yet kingdom of God. So here is a deep thought for us to to ponder. That we're supposed to have a hope as a people who are living in exile. That Christ followers are at times to feel like foreigners where we live, learn, work, and play. And that this fallen world should seem strange and unsatisfactory to us. Why? Because we were actually made for another world. That when you look at the kingdoms around us that are opposed to the kingdom of God, they should be hostile toward us. Why? Because we're actually citizens of another kingdom. And all you have to do is go back a short 40 years in our history, specifically in the West. 40 years ago, our culture was dominated by a Judeo-Christian worldview. Christian morality was embraced pretty much by everybody. So being a good citizen and being a good Christian actually looked the same. It was really hard to tell the difference. But if you fast forward just a short 40 years, because of the exponential increase of secularization, of globalization, the nations moving here and bringing different religions and philosophies and ways of thinking and views of God, right? And pluralization. Now there's many truths and many ways that are acceptable. You just kind of find what works for you. It should actually now be very difficult very difficult to confuse the two. And if you go to certain places in the U.S., certain cities, Boston is one. When you're in Boston, Boston is now less than 3% Christian. Did you know that? When you talk to a Christian or a pastor up there, it actually means something. And the life of a Christian in those cities looks very different than the culture around them that is very and increasingly becoming more and more hostile to the things of God, to the people of God. So here's what I'd like to do today with this passage. I would like to focus on verses 13 through 17. Then I'm going to touch in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. If you have a good grasp of those verses, particularly verse 13, you will be able to more clearly understand the in-between passages that I'm not going to spend time on today. But here's your homework that I'd like to give you between now and next Sunday. Would you tomorrow morning, even if you've already read this passage in the, in the Bible reading plan, would you read this passage again in the morning? And then would you be committed to having a conversation with one person this week? Could be a Christian, could, could not be a Christian, and talk and discuss the truths of what God is saying to you through this passage. And Pastor Johnny will grade you next week when he returns. So here's the first Verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, therefore, therefore is a very important word in this passage. And what Peter is doing is he is pointing back to verses 1 through 12. It is there for a reason. And here's what I love about this passage. Because we are a people that actually loves to skip right to just tell me what I need to do. 
what I don't need to do, the three things, the five things, and wind me up and let me go. Because we are such a performance-driven people. But what the epistles have a tendency to do is to start first with the why. That uh, the why, which is our identity in Christ, who I am, what God says is true, where my conviction and my motivation, which informs the way I live. And it means that the why of our life always has to inform the what and how of our living. And Peter reminds us that our being, who we are in Christ, must inform our living How we live out the truths of the gospel. Why is this important? Because every single day, it's learning the joy and the discipline of how to preach the gospel to yourself. That every day, I need to preach the gospel to myself. Because I'm prone to forget what is true. What has been declared for me and about me because of the finished work of the cross. So, here's who you are. If you are in Christ... And you have a true saving faith. And I'm just going to give a quick recap. If you missed the last two weeks, go to the website, listen to them. Excellent messages. Here's the first. Therefore, we've been born again to a living hope. We've been born again to a living hope. Right? It, It means that you could actually be, you could actually claim to be a Christian and not actually be one. Did you know that? How do you know that you are a Christian? How do you have assurance of that? Well, this is one way that you have been born again. See, not everybody on planet earth will be born twice. Everybody's born once. That's a physical birth. But only when you repent of sin and place faith in Jesus Christ are you born again spiritually. Jesus talks about this with Nicodemus. When that happens, the old has gone. The new has come. We are a new creation. Here's another thing Peter reminds us of. We've been chosen by God. What a deep well that is beautiful well of water. How about this one? We have an inheritance that is imperishable, incorruptible, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for us. It means nobody's going to rob God of that treasure for us. How about this one? We are protected by God through our trials. Did you know that the way your faith is refined It's refined as you go through trials. When we go through trials, I don't have to be scared or terrified. Why? Because God is protecting me. We have a faith, Peter says, that's more valuable than gold. It means search the earth and you will find nothing more valuable than a relationship with Jesus Christ. How about this? This is mind-blowing. We are experiencing a salvation that the prophets and the angels longed to experience. Now think about that. Scripture talks about angels who are vastly superior to us in intelligence, desire to learn more and know more about the gospel. That's that's fascinating to me. It means this in light of that statement. There is no boring salvation story. There is no boring grace story. There's no boring story of how you came to faith in Christ. The angels and the prophets are going, oh my gosh, that's amazing. That you could save a wretch like Will. If you could save him, it's unlimited how many other people you can save. That we, if we're in Christ, have been plucked from hell. And we have been transferred into the marvelous light from the kingdom of darkness. And the prophets are going, man, that's better than anything we ever saw. 
And when you read the Old Testament, the prophets saw some pretty amazing supernatural things. So, in light of therefore, what do you think Peter is going to tell us to do first? Now, if we live in the South, here's what you tell people. Just do right. Be a do-gooder. Act right. Behave. That's what we tell people in the South. Like, don't cuss. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't hang out with anybody who does. Right? Or is Peter going to tell us, hey, just be a good churchgoer. It's all about your attendance on a, on a Sunday that, that, that makes the difference in the end. And while that is hugely important, and we should gather with the body to celebrate and worship the Lord. What does Peter start with? Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That the great response to the glorious gospel is to set our hope fully on Christ and his grace that is being revealed and will fully be revealed on that day. Now remember the audience Peter is writing to the scattered church, which I think we could probably relate to a little bit living through a pandemic. The church globally has been scattered. There's opportunity like no other time for, this, for the spread of the gospel because God's people have been scattered. It's, it's amazing to, to think about. But in light of that, and in light of what the Christians of the time were experiencing... Don't you think it might be a little bit insensitive of Peter to say that? Shouldn't Peter rather say, well, in in light of everything that's happening, uh, you should put your hope in God resolving your circumstances. You should put your hope in God uh, resolving your situation or your suffering or your persecution. Hey, don't worry, church. Everything is going to be okay. But Peter, he says not to hope in those things. Why? Because those things might not ever come in this life. He's writing to Christians at the time who are being quartered, who are being strung up and cut in two with a saw, who are being dipped in tar and lit on fire, who are being crucified upside down. Read the the great uh, chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and, and, and what happens to some Christians in that chapter. So, what is hope? More importantly, the question is, what is biblical hope? Is biblical hope just simply wishful thinking? Is it like, hey, do you, do you think you're going to get the job? I hope so. Do you, you think you're going to get accepted to the program? I hope so. Do you think your boyfriend is is going to ask you to marry him after he's been dating you for 10 years? I hope so. Ladies, if that's you, you should run. (laughs) That's for another day. If that's what hope is, then my friends, there's nothing for us to press into here at, at all. So what does it mean to give or to have rather biblical hope? Peter gives us two ways. And neither one of them are emotive, which, which just simply means like, um, you know, don't worry, be happy, chin up, think the best, be positive, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Here's what Peter does. He presses into the way we think. Now track with that. Here's the first way of the two. Preparing your minds for action. The actual original language uses the phrase Preparing your minds for action 
Here's the phrase. It means to gird up your loins. That's the phrase. To gird up your loins. Now, I'm not going to exegete loins. If you don't know what that is, I can't help you. Uh, Pastor Mark, after the service, will be glad to talk to you about that. (laughs) However, let me talk about girding. What in the world does girding mean? Well, to understand this phrase, you have to understand the fashion of the day for men. The fashion of the day for men is that they wore long robes. The second thing you have to understand about men of the day, they didn't run. Which personally I think is one of the most godly attributes of the men of that day. Running was not fun at all. And men only ran if something was trying to eat them or destroy them or kill them. Now today is quite different. We'll go into a store and we'll pay lots of money for chafe resistant material. And then we'll head out and we'll on the road and run like Forrest Gump. Like, you know, there's no tomorrow, right? But running back then was an actual survival instinct, which you could argue for today because we take such poor care of ourselves. We have to run to stay alive. I'll give you that one. But when men ran, here's what Here's what it entailed. It would require a man to pull up his robes and to tuck them into his belt so that he would not expose himself. It was a very embarrassing endeavor for a man to run. Why does Peter use this language? And how does it relate to that phrase? Peter's saying that if you're going to be able to move toward the mark of setting your hope fully on Jesus Christ that will be revealed on that day, you're going to need to pull your thoughts together. And you're going to have to tuck them into an orderly fashion so that they don't trip you up. When the evil one, that's the Satan, the devil, attacks our thinking, and he attacks our thinking in primarily one of two ways— Lies about who you are and lies about what God has said is true. Just go to Genesis 3. Look how he tempts Adam and Eve, right? And often when the enemy attacks our thinking, do you know what happens? We have no truth in us to tuck into our belt. It's like we're standing pantless and exposed before the devil, And and Peter is saying and telling us to prepare our minds for action. And here's the deal uh, why I want to press this so hard. It's because we, in just our natural fallen state, we don't drift to better thinking in regard to the gospel. Actually, our tendency is to drift away from the truths of the gospel. No one in a broken world is telling you, hey, Will, Just submit your thinking to Jesus Christ. Who's telling us that? Is that on our news feed? Is that on our social media? It could be if you're listening to Christians and pastors and all that. But as a whole, our broken culture is not telling us that. We will always drift away from things like this. Prayer. Reading the word of God. Godliness. Faith. uh, Obedience. Godly relationships. Christ-centered community. We always have a tendency to drift toward compromise, toward justification and tolerance of sin. We get really good at that one. And even disobedience. Paul, when he's writing to the Christians in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 4 and 5, I'm going to read this, gives us some incredible insight into this. Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's good news. Listen to verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There is a battle going on for our minds, even right now, to be distracted, to go to your device, to tune out, to to check out. And what Peter and Paul are admonishing us in is that we have to lock the truths of Scripture, of God in, and we have to secure them so that we don't get tripped up by lofty opinions and arguments from a fallen and broken world that are always waging war against the truths of Scripture. My friends, we're not cultural Christians. We're called to be biblical Christians. So, so how does this play out Uh, What are some examples of lofty opinions that that want to trip us up? How about this one? How about the lofty opinion that you're not actually forgiven if you're in Christ? Oh, no, 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 no. Not you, not fully. Because look, you even sinned today. You're you're not fully forgiven. And then you have to go to Scripture and go, no, 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 no. The the Word says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've got to lock that truth in. And you know you have it locked in because then you actually begin to forgive other people. And you know that you have that truth. How about this one? The lofty opinion that you can't trust the word of God. Therefore, you can just kind of create a a cut and paste theology to justify your life and your lifestyle. But you go back and go, no, 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 no. All of scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, correction, reproof. On and on and on. You have to lock that truth in. How about things like marriage? How about the lofty opinion of our culture that says, you know what, husbands, if you're not happy and she's not meeting your needs, marriage is a contract to be broken. You get to have a do-over, right? But as the fall of Christ, we have to go, no, marriage is not a contract to be broken. It's a covenant that that Jesus models for me as he joyfully lays his life down and sacrifices for his bride. We have to lock the covenant love in. How about if you're single? And how we, you view sex. I'm not single and I'm married, but how you view sex. How about the lofty opinions of, of our culture that say, you know what? It's, there's nothing wrong with porn. There's nothing wrong with sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. There's nothing wrong with living with your boyfriend or girlfriend. That's practice for a real marriage. You have to go, no, no, no. As a follower of Christ, I'm going, no. I'm to flee from sexual immorality. That, that, that sex is a gift to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. You have to lock it in. How about our finances? The lofty opinion is make all you can and spend all you can on yourself because daggone it, you deserve it. But what about the truths of Scripture that combat that? They go, no, I'm not an owner. I'm a steward. I'm to honor the Lord with my first fruits and with my wealth. How about this one in 2020? The lofty opinion of us being told that we should view people as different than us. If they have a different skin color or a different political affiliation, right? Or they come from the different side of the tracks. And you go, no, 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 no. We're all creating the image of God. With equal worth, value, and dignity, you have to lock the truth in. How about this one? Where do you get your wisdom? 
Do you get it from the culture? Do you go to relationships that you, you know, you want to learn more about money? So you go ask your friend who's, who's broke, bankrupt, and in debt, and you want to get financial wisdom from him? Or how about re- relational wisdom? So you go to your friend who's been married four times, has multiple kids, and is currently living with her boyfriend and girlfriend. You go, hey, I just really want to pursue a life of holiness and righteousness and, and purity. And like, do you ask them? And you go, no, 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 no. The beginning of wisdom is fear of God. Like I, I go to scripture to, to, to get wisdom. What source do we continually run to to combat lofty opinions? And what happens with us as followers of Christ? We just never truly lock these truths in and we just don't believe them. And even we come in week after week and we hear, you know, preaching of the word of God and, and, and we go, yes, amen, hallelujah, whatever other Christian language we can make up to describe that. And we leave out of here and before our hand hits the door handle, we're already being inundated by a world opposed to the truths of God. And what happens? We now lose sight of the grace of Jesus Christ that's being revealed and will be revealed on that day. And we drift. Do you you see how this works? We could go on and on and on. So what's the second way that Peter tells us? Well, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, we've got that. And being sober-minded. What is sober-minded? Well, it just means that we shouldn't be fuzzy or hazy or foggy or impaired in our thinking. If you've ever had an injury and you've been on like extreme painkillers, I was on hydrocodone once for a back injury and it was terrible. And like, like I got on that and like chairs are melting and the walls are like, burning up and I I had to quit taking that stuff because it just impaired my thinking. But for so many Christians, this is kind of how we walk around in terms of our thinking. We're governed by haze and we're governed by subjective emotion. What does that mean? Oh, it's what I think. It's what I feel. Well, those are important, but more important is what God thinks and what God says is true. That we're not to be governed by those things, but by clarity and truth, that we're to be alert and awake. So, what are some practical, simple ways that we give into drunkenness? Well, here's one, and it's kind of the, the no-brainer. It's drunkenness. It's the abuse of alcohol. Like, you're out of control, you're not sober-minded. How about this, the kind of a state of living in a, a perpetual state of daydreaming. I just don't deal with reality, so I just daydream all the time. How about this one? Despair, Right? All three of those are are examples of not being sober-minded. So when we live in a state of not being sober-minded, do you know what we do? We begin to create coping mechanisms. And we begin to create functional saviors to help me make sense of this day that I'm living in. And so we start to binge on all kinds of things. We run to porn. We self-medicate. We indulge in extravagant materialism and vacationing. And we become a workaholic because those are just other forms of escape for me. Or how about this one? Busyness. If I just stay busy enough, I can deal with today. And I don't have to think about tomorrow. And my friends, if we run to anything other than Christ... We have a misplaced hope. 
and it's the acknowledgement of this, that the world we live in, it's broken and it's fallen. But you know what? It's also beautiful. It's, it's both at the same time. There's beautiful things in this world. So we need the scriptures, the holy scriptures of God to sober us up so that we know how to navigate both realities. Now, if anyone knew what it was like to not be sober-minded, do you know who it was? Peter. I always go like, does this guy have credibility? Does he, you know, can he speak with, you know, conviction? Well, look, look at Peter's. There's many examples. Here's two. It, Peter didn't have, he wasn't sober-minded when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, you're not going to die. I'm going to set up a chair to your right hand and help you rule and reign. Oh, that's good, Peter. He lost sight, right? How about this one? When Peter, he, Peter wasn't sober-minded when he said, hey, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. I'll even lay my life down for her, or for you. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you'll actually deny me three times. So Jesus gets arrested. Peter gets confronted by a teenage girl. And he says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter goes, no, 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 denies him three times. And Peter runs. And I get it. Teenage girls can be scary. I've raised two. I understand how that can happen. But do you know what happened in that moment? Peter did not lock robes, his robes into his belt. He did not have the truth to lock in, and it tripped him up. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It talks about before you became a Christian. Verse 15. But as he who has called you is holy... Also be holy in all your conduct. It's a big statement. Verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. There's two primary um, truths that I want to highlight here. Peter says, and he calls us to a life of holiness and to a life of reverence. Reverence just means fear of God, uh, worship, reverential awe of, of who God is. Let's tackle the word holy. The word holy in Greek is hagios. You know what it means? It means different. It's the name of our series. It means this. <clears throat> Let me say it this way. It should mean this, that the Christian is hagios. Because he, he or she is set apart or different from others. Now, notice I didn't say better than others. Because that's called self-righteousness of which we need to confess and repent of. But we are different than others. And there is laid the task on every Christian the, the joy of being different. Now, notice the progression of, of how this is laid out. Peter's saying at one time... We were not holy. That means that you were not a Christian. You were actually an enemy of God. You were hostile to him, as God's word says. But then, because you realized your need for Jesus, you repented and you placed faith in who Jesus is. And he, in that moment, made us holy. Pastor Johnny will unpack that as you get deeper into First um, Peter. So as a result, we now are called to live lives that are set apart, reflecting God's 
holiness, his character, and his nature. And here's what it means. It means that as you live in this world and not of the world, the world at times is going to think that you're a weirdo. (laughs) Isn't that encouraging? Strange. Odd. Because you live a different kind of life. Let me ask you a question. Does your life as a follower of Christ look different than the world around you? Does the way you live your life actually provoke questions that lead you to the opportunity to say, hey, it's just Jesus and because of what he's done and what I'm striving to to do. You you know, in in the Western context especially, the biggest barrier at times for people coming to faith in Christ are the very people that carry his name. I say that in love. Because all of us, you know, it's the argument, uh, all Christians are hypocrites. I know. You should come join us. <laughs> we just have Jesus, and he forgives us, and he helps me to be less of a hypocrite every day. Right? You know, Gandhi, when he, he famously he had a conversation, and Gandhi said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians, because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That should, that should break our heart. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, your friends, your co-workers, your family should see and notice that you no longer act the way you formerly did in, in ignorance. Because of Jesus, we now live differently in our habits, our actions, our attitudes, our comments, our commitments, our language, our motivation, our relationships, what we engage in and and don't engage in, where we find our joy, our peace, our contentment, our hope, the way we view all kinds of issues from sex and marriage and money and everything else. You see, the difference is seen by the way you live your life in front of non-Christians. See, the gospel is not just about my salvation. Oh, but it is. It's so glorious and it saves me from God's wrath. But it's also the gospel of transformation, that it should be changing our desires every day as I want to become more like Jesus in desire to sin less and less. And listen, the holiness and the strangeness of Christians threatens a culture that assumes recognizing differences among us is a really dangerous thing. We ought not do that. So our culture wants us to conform, to be homogenous and androgynous. And I, I think years ago when I was coaching uh, my, my son's soccer team and from you know, the people higher up on the food chain who were meeting with the coaches, they said, hey, we, we want to encourage you to do this at the end of the season. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody is a winner. Everybody is first place. And I said, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. I got kids that are so stinking lazy and we're gonna re- they get a first place. We're going we're gonna to work hard and that means we might lose. You're going to have first place and last place. What are we doing if we tell these children these truths? So I'm always big on asking for forgiveness, not permission. God's people should be different. Why? Because we live and we play for a different 
audience. And there should be a difference between the life of a Christian and a non-Christian. Not better than, but different than. Jesus says, you tell a tree by its fruit. Reverence, fear of God, and holiness go hand in hand. Listen to the progression of how this works. The more I understand the holiness of God, the more I understand my sinfulness. The more I understand my sinfulness, the more I understand my need for God. And the more I understand my need for God, the more I revere him. Oh my gosh, it's good news. And the more I revere him, the more I want to pursue a life of holiness because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross 2,000 years ago. Now, you could also reverse the order of what I just said. You could say, well, if I don't live a life of holiness, it could demonstrate that I actually don't revere him. I don't walk in fear of the Lord. And if I don't revere him, it demonstrates that you think you might not need a savior because you don't think you have a sin problem. Do you see how the reverse of that works as well? So, in light of the therefore statements, our identity in Christ, preparing our minds for action, being sober-minded, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed, living a life of holiness and reverence to God, he then says in chapter 2, verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. It's a, literally a picture of um, dressing, taking some clothes off and putting other clothes on. In the Greek, it, it's a little bit more graphic and descriptive. It actually means to strip off your clothes as if you're stripping off soiled garments. Like nobody wants to stay in that, right? So let's you know, quickly. So what is saying, what Peter's saying is that there are things in our life that must be stripped off. Here's some macro categories. Old ways of thinking, our, our former ignorance, sinful habits and patterns, self-serving attitudes, opinions, perceptions, and ideas, misguided motivations that we are continually, with the help of the Holy Spirit, take those things off and put on the truths of who God is so that I don't get tripped up. Paul talks about renewing our mind. And then he goes on in verse 2 and 3, and I love this. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Again, it's another way to go, hey, just because you say you're a Christian doesn't necessarily mean you are a Christian. He's saying, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's saying that Christians must strengthen their souls with the pure food that comes from the word of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, he says this. I love this phrase. I use this a lot of times when talking to men. When I was a child, I talked, I thought, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So, that is why feeding on the word of God every day is mission critical. Why? 
before I hear from a fallen and broken world that raises all kinds of arguments and lofty opinions toward the truths of God, I need to hear from the Word of God. I need to hear and be reminded of what is true. I need to preach the gospel to myself. I need to remind others of the gospel that I need fresh bread for daily living. Fresh bread for daily living. That getting up and reading your Bible is not a chore or a duty to perform. I get to delight in it because it helps me to not drift in my thinking. And every one of us should open up the word every day and we should ask and answer two questions. You know what they are? What is God's word saying to me? And what does he want me to do with what he's saying to me? It's not rocket science. And what's at stake is not our begrudging submission. What's at stake is our joy. So think about, if you've been following Jesus and you read the word of God, if I miss a day in reading God's word, do you know who notices I notice because I start to drift. My thinking, I'm not as patient. All the, my flesh just wants to creep up. If I miss two days in the word of God, do you know who noticed? My wife. <laughs> You're not, you didn't pray, did you? You're not in the word. You know, if I miss three days, who notices? The world around me. The world around me. Are you seeking daily nourishment through the feeding on the word of God? Martin Luther a reformer, he said this. He said there were only two days on his calendar. This day and that day. And that day is when the grace of Jesus Christ would be fully revealed. He said on that day, God will bring judgment to the unbeliever. But he will bring grace. He will bring grace to his children. What side will you stand on on that day? You see, hope is not a situation. It is not a location. It is not a possession, and it's not an experience. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it is a hope that will never disappoint. It's a hope founded in and upon his sinless life. The life he lived perfectly that we can't. It's founded upon the substitutionary death of Jesus. That Jesus died in my place. So that God's wrath wouldn't come to me, but it went to Jesus. So as I repent and I place faith in Jesus, I get his righteousness. And it's founded upon the reality and the truth that Jesus Christ, after three days, rose from the dead. To conquer sin, death, and hell. So... What is God saying to you today? How is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Is it for you to commit your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, to, to place your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, to move from a hope that disappoints to a hope that will never disappoint? Are you here today as a Christian who has trusted Jesus as Savior but never surrendered and submitted to him as Lord? Are there things in your life that you need to surrender, that you need to put off so that you can put on? Is it to share your faith? Is it to go somewhere? Is it to stay? What is that for you? So as I close in prayer, I go back to the first statement. 
And my prayer is that we would think and we would live with the end in mind. And we would let the hope of that glorious day inform the way we think and live today. Let's pray together. Father, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says to continually uh, set our gaze upon you, Jesus, that you are, you have authored our faith and you will perfect our faith. Man, that's good news. But I, I pray that, that we as a people would be reminded of what hope is, biblical hope. And Father, you would give courage to your people who are your sons and daughters to not lose perspective that we are exiles, that we are ultimately living for another world, another kingdom, and another day. And it enables us to let the the light of that truth illuminate the suffering of this day. Father, I pray that you would give the courage uh, to the person who has heard the gospel maybe for the first time, to surrender to Jesus through confessing their sin, through placing faith in your life, death, and resurrection. And your word says that they then are born again, made right in your eyes, adopted into your family, saved from hell and saved to a life of holiness and reverence as we walk our remaining days out. Be glorified, Lord, as we continue to worship you through prayer and through song for your glory, for the good of your people, and for the advancement of your kingdom. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.